When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul where we discuss the legal and business side behind the glitz and glam of Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel attorney and current big law media lawyer. Hey, hey, and I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast, founder of Lola Media. Paul, you gotta excuse my, where I am right now. I'm actually in Joshua Tree on a trip and I needed to find a place to record this. So I'm recording in a bathroom because there's a group of people in this house. And, you know, this podcast is important. We get whatever it takes to, to make sure whatever that we it takes, it. whatever <laughs> it takes. You know, the bathroom has pretty good acoustics from what I can tell. I got these new headphones and you sound really clear to me. So, yeah, well, we'll see between Val and Marco, our producers. They're either going to love the acoustics or going to hate it because they're like, dude, you're in a bathroom and this sounds like you're uh, echoing all over the place. But I think it should be fine. It should be fun. And you know, it's funny. We both live in New York City, but I actually don't think we've both been in the same city at the same time since we first started this podcast. <laughs> so one of these days, we got we to gotta do an in-person show. I'm sure the fans would love it. No, in-person show, going to video. We're going to do YouTube. We're going to do all that stuff. I like recording from my chair in my apartment where I'm comfortable with my mic stand. I always keep my stuff with me, my gear with me. So when we're on the road, because you got to record a good show, man. And I think we've got one this week. Our main topic for this week is that we're talking about two things. We're talking about Kanye West pulling out of Coachella and what that means from a business contract side of things. And then the second thing we're talking about is, Paul, do you want to tell us what it is? Yeah. I mean, our main topic was supposed to be Kanye and the all the Coachella lineup changes. But it's not every day that a historic Supreme Court justice nomination and confirmation occurs. So, Katanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed to the Supreme Court. She's the first African-American female justice on the Supreme Court, and it's super historic. So we're going to switch it up and devote a lot of time to her and celebrating her accomplishment and looking forward to her impact on the court. I love that you did bring that up because I think it's important for us to talk about. I want to learn about it. I want to learn why you find it such an important topic to tell the audience and can't wait. So let's kick it off with some updates here. Number one, we got AT&T Discovery deal update. Paul, why don't you tell us what's going on there? We've talked about this in past episodes. What's the latest? I mean, it's news in the sense that the deal closed on Friday. So what that means is Discovery and Warner Media are now a new company. So AT&T sold Warner Media, merged with Discovery, and that will start trading on the stock exchange Monday under the ticker WBD. This is something we've, as you said, we've discussed. The deal was announced last May, so it's been in process for 10 or 11 months now. So it's not really a surprise, and there were no real challenges to it closing, but now it's official. So Dave Slaslov's in charge, 
And he's going to run Discovery Warner sort of like the way he ran Discovery before. And it's poised to compete with Disney and Netflix and all the other streaming giants. Usually what that means is there's synergies, cost savings. So people are probably going to get laid off from Warner Media. A lot of the senior execs have already left Warner Media, and it remains to be seen, you know, how HBO Max and Discovery merge into one product. I remember before you like this deal in general, what makes you excited about this? So I think it's another titan in the ring of streaming. So I think that's generally better for consumers. If you loved HBO Max or some people love Discovery Plus, and now you can get the same thing in one package, or eventually you can. The other thing I liked about it, just from a business perspective, is AT&T, if you're a Discovery shareholder, AT&T kind of had to sell WarnerMedia at a loss, right? It paid a lot more for WarnerMedia two years ago than it is sort of getting back now. And so if you're Discovery, it's like you're shopping in the bargain basement. Ah, I like that. I think it's a good way to put it. I mean, I'm excited to see what the type of content they put out. I think eventually I will get this Discovery Plus thing. Like I said in the past, I'm curious to see David Dobrik's show, who's the big YouTuber who has this Discovery show. And obviously, I'm not going to get it just for one show. I want to see all the other content they put out. So I would assume in the next six months, I'll probably end up being a subscriber for the purpose of research, at least. You may get it by virtue of your HBO Max. So that's the other thing. Oh, okay. I see. I see. Okay. So it might not, I don't have to get a separate subscription for it. Well, we don't know, but it might be a single sign-on where you just get both. Maybe they'll increase the price. It's unclear. They haven't really said specifically what their plan is. Got it. But I'm thinking if, you, if you're if you an HBO Max sub, you'll probably eventually get them both. Yeah, so this is kind of similar to like how with Disney, you can do the bundle, ESPN, Disney Plus, and Hulu all together. Yeah, similar, basically, without getting into the sort of corporate law sure. details of it. Yes. All right, so we'll keep an eye on that. Next uh, quick update. This guy somewhat controversial. I'm a huge fan of his, and it's not, I mean, he's he's a very entertaining guy, but he's not an entertainment executive. Elon Musk got a big chunk of Twitter, 9.2% to be exact. Mesh, why don't you uh, tell us what you think about that? Yeah, look, we got the bad boy of Twitter, Elon Musk, the king of memes. This guy has just been trolling the internet for the last couple of years, and Twitter being one of the biggest platforms where he's not only made some you know, crazy statements. He's moved markets. He's moved the stock market. He's moved the the crypto markets with things like Dogecoin and Bitcoin. But in this case, yes, he went out and was slowly buying over the last like several months, was buying Twitter stock to the point where now he owns 9.2%. It was announced because obviously you have to disclaim that you are, you know, that large of a shareholder. But yeah, you the, have to disclose when you cross 5%. So exactly. something... Yeah. And, but on top of that, people were thinking, okay, he's just a passive investor. He wants to like, he thinks that Twitter has a lot of value in it. Also, like, what's his agenda here? I think two things like Twitter is still one of the really, really big platforms when it comes to news. Obviously, there's been some controversy whether they should be more free speech focused or do they regulate content? I think that's the back and forth that's happened. I think he believes absolutely in free speech and that they shouldn't regulate or, you know, censor any form of content. So we know that that's influence is going to be there when it regards to that. I think in terms of product, we're going to see a lot of moves over there as well. Now, here's the other thing. Like, I think he's a polarizing character. So is this a way for one, them to recruit more talent into Twitter or is it the opposite? Obviously, I think you have people who are diehard Musk fans. And then you have people who are like, look, I'm not working for this guy. I'm not into him. So that's one angle as well. I think one of the other things to think about is it moves Twitter stock. So we'll keep an eye on things. I think the the big thing here is the content that gets put on Twitter and 
what is going to happen with that? Do we see more and more activity on there? And we'll see what happens there. So let's move on from that. And let's talk about something that's definitely more entertainment focused. Our boy Ed Sheeran won his copyright lawsuit for being, you know, he was being sued for Shape of You. Paul, why don't you tell us what happened there? Ed Sheeran was sued by Sammy Switch, I guess is the artist's name for the claim was that the O-I-O-I-O-Y part of Shape of You in basically stole Sammy Switch's chorus, which is O-O-Y-O-Y-O-Y. And, you know, I guess they do sound similar, but Ed Sheeran is not a sort of stranger to these types of cases. In 2017, he settled a case for Photograph. It's a $20 million case. I don't know what he paid. I don't think that was disclosed. But in his view, this is sort of opened the floodgates. Now the sharks are in the water and he's getting sued for a lot of other songs because he's one of the most popular artists in the world and he makes a lot of money. I think in this case, he probably could have settled, but he wanted to take it to the mat. He wanted to fight this case to the end for, on principle because you know his position is he doesn't steal from other people. Yeah. You know, he, he If he collaborates with someone, he gives credit. And now he's filming his entire creative process so that he has footage in case anyone tries to allege that he stole something. He's like, it's all there on tape now. And I think he thinks that these lawsuits are just generally bad for the industry and plaintiff's lawyers are being very opportunistic about it. And so he wants to see the whole regime change. I, I agree with the man. I think this is getting fucking ridiculous. Like Ed Sheeran's a super talented guy. Obviously he's like, dude, you know, look, he has worked really hard to get to where he is. I'm not saying that other artists are not. Like He was homeless like, for two and a half yeah, years. Yeah, you know? look, like, I, and like as someone who, I mean, like I never made it as a songwriter. I pursued being a songwriter when I was in New York. I know how hard it is and like getting, like, you have to have persistence and conviction and he did it and good for him. And people trying to like, you're going to what? You can't say, oh, I, oh, I, oh, I, that's your original song. Like, get out of here, man. You know, you want to make some money, then go work your ass off and go tour write some great songs, send him the songs. Maybe instead of trying to sue the guy, send him really good songs and he might put you on the map. Instead now, the guy is stuck with like, I think they're saying it's like a million pound lawsuit, legal fees, million pounds, up to a million pounds in legal fees. The guy, Sammy Switch is like, it's just the beginning. It's not the end, bro. Yeah, he wants to appeal. Like go home, write a good fucking song and write 10 of them, write a hundred of them and pitch the shit out of it and get out there versus trying to, you know, sue somebody. Who's going to want to work with you now? You're the guy who's trying to sue Ed Sheeran. It should have been like, hey, man, like this is an opportunity for me to potentially work with you and write songs for you. That's how I see it. I get it. Like you think that you wrote an original song and Ed Sheeran stole it. And look, the song itself is worth $20 million in or 20 million pounds in royalties. And from what I understand, Paul, like the lawsuit, when a lawsuit's going on, they pause royalty payments. And so now Ed Sheeran, I guess the the royalties is in the amount of like 2.2 million pounds. You know, that's a big part of his income. That's how his team gets paid, et cetera. And this other guy, Sammy Switch, is stuck with a bunch of legal bills. So I don't know, man. I think if it's obvious that they stole your song, that's one thing. But like Ed Sheeran's a talented songwriter. O-I, O-I, O-I. You can't copyright that shit. It's a UK case, so it doesn't really fall under the US copyright regime. So it's not the same analysis, but I think there's some similarities for sure. Listen, I mean, I'm not as incensed by the case as you are. I think if people have their content stolen, they should there should be a process. Maybe there's a better one where you don't have to go to court for years and years to sort of have this decided. Maybe they need to make some sort of tribunal or some sort of administrative process where you can just, you know, file a claim and have it heard quickly and either dismissed or worked out. But listen, I mean, just because someone's a big star doesn't mean they'll never steal. I think no, no, Ed I Sheeran 
Ed Sheeran is is incredibly talented, and why would he need to steal? Right, I hear your point on that. And so, if someone's being opportunistic, I don't think that is right. But at the same time, yeah, just because you're sort of not well known doesn't mean you aren't working hard. No, totally. And look, it could be taken out of context. I'm not saying that people are not working hard. I'm saying that in this case specifically, they had you know where they analyzed the music. They had a bunch of musicians look at it and say. This is not the same thing. It'd be different if it was like you stole something and you win the case. I think in this case here, it's not like Ed Sheeran didn't win the case because he's Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran won the case because people looked at the music, they looked at the lyrics, they looked and they compared it and they said, hey, this is not the same thing. Or that it wasn't unique. I don't know exactly what they said, but I think they sound similar. But the question is, is it unique enough to really be, if it's a basic building block of music, then it's not something you can claim protection over. And so I, I don't know exactly what the decision was, but he won. And the point is, like you said, you can't, yeah, 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 right? How many songs have yeah, yeah, right, yeah? Or, right. you know, I want you bad or something like those, those yeah. concepts that, <laughs> yeah, totally. that come up in so many different songs. Why would you think that you could own that? At the same time, if someone stole something that's really unique to you, uh, just because you're not a big artist, I think you should still have an ability to enforce your rights. Agreed. Okay, and so our last update before we get into the main topics is, Will Smith and the Oscars, the Oscar ban, a 10-year ban he's received from the Academy, which seems, you know, fair. I think he accepted it pretty respectfully. I mean, I think he's been ahead of this and knowing that this was coming. Paul, what was the update there? Well, yeah, that was the update. So the 10-year ban was announced yesterday and uh, he accepted it. But I think it's just a shame overall. That's all I'll really say. At least he gets to keep his Oscar. You think it's fair? I think it's probably a little bit excessive, but, you know. Uh, I, I think it, it's so. yeah. So I I don't have an opinion on the actual length of time. I think that something needed to happen. You know, like whether it's a ban. I mean, I, I'm glad it wasn't a forever ban. I always believe that everyone's got a comeback story. I think that something needed to be done because it is. You know, the whole thing was it. It sucks. Like for Chris Rock, for Will Smith. I mean, the whole thing was just a, a terrible thing. So I guess that's what what happens. You know, at least at your point, he got his Oscar. So. You know, 10 years from now, he might come back and have a great comeback story and win another Oscar. Okay, Paul, we're back. Let's get into our two main topics today, but starting off. Oh, wait, no. Mesh, I've decided I'm backing out of this podcast. I can't continue. That was a joke. I just tried to pull a Kanye on you. <laughs> okay, shit, man. Uh, okay, I said I, I, this is based on our based on I, I, you literally caught me off guard for a second. I was like, are you did that upset about the Ed Sheeran comments and the uh, and the the ten year Oscar ban? Well, no. Okay, I get it now, Paul. You are pulling out as the headliner of Better Call Paul, and you're going to be replaced by someone mediocre. In this case, we're talking about Kanye West pulling out of Coachella as a headliner, being replaced by the Swedish House Mafia and The Weeknd. Obviously, I think this is a big deal, not from the standpoint of, it's not surprising, you know, a lot of controversy around Kanye West lately, but pulling out of one of the biggest, biggest shows. The biggest North American music festival now. And like you're pulling out, like it's next weekend, and you're pulling out as a headliner. I can't imagine, I would love to now learn from you, Paul, like what goes into the damage control there, the contracts, how much money is lost. Like people are buying tickets to this thing because he is one of the headliners. I know. No, my uh, my wife, Jessica, wanted to, she was 
because we're in New York, and she said, well, let's go to L.A. for the second weekend of April. I want to see Kanye because she, you know, she's a huge Kanye fan. I'm a huge Kanye fan, too. I know, you know, he's controversial and all that, but his music, I think, speaks yeah. for itself. And I'm a huge fan. I would have gone to see him, too. I'm kind of glad we didn't, you know, get in the infinite queue for tickets because he's he's backing out now. But to answer your question, I mean, from a legal matter, I think massive festivals are different than sort of like one-off concerts where you know, you go to see a particular artist. But in any event, if you actually do take the time to read the fine print on your ticket, you'll see that the promoter slash venue always say that they're not responsible, lineup subject to change, schedule subject to change. So they're not really required to give refunds if one of the main acts or a lesser act backs out of the concert at the last minute because things can happen, you know, especially in the era of this pandemic. There could be travel restrictions, visa restrictions. Someone could test positive for COVID and not be able to perform. So there's a lot of factors. Obviously, Kanye is an unpredictable guy. So basically, like the fans may be disappointed, but they don't really have a huge recourse because the promoter's not guaranteeing the event, right? It's like, we'd love for these people to perform. We have deals with them in place, but we can't guarantee that any one of them will, that each of them will sort of be there. Yeah. Well, I think in this case too, he didn't pull out because he was sick or he didn't pull out because of, you know, some personal stuff that he's going through. I mean, obviously, I guess it is kind of personal. But in this case, he pulled out. There was a little bit of drama that was happening. From what I read, basically, he was going to bring Travis Scott out on one of his songs, and he wanted Billie Eilish to apologize to Travis Scott. But she called him out on Instagram saying that, you know, make sure that you help your fans. This is in, you know, everything that happened in Astroworld and, you know, the terrible things that people died at that show. And Billie Eilish had posted something where, there was someone, a fan of hers at the concert and she stopped it to make sure they were okay. And she called Travis Scott out. She ended up removing it. And then Kanye West calls her out. And then on top of that, there's a change.org petition calling for Kanye to be removed from the festival because of his public harassment of Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson. And they got like almost 50,000 signatures and they criticized Coachella for giving him a platform. So it seems like there's like a bunch of different things that are happening here. Whether Kanye is like, fuck it, I don't want to deal with this shit. You know, you don't want me there anyways. Or was it Coachella asking him to be removed there? It seems that it's a bunch of different things that's going on. Probably. And, you know, we don't know for sure. I would find it highly unlikely that Coachella, 10 days before the first weekend, asked him to back out. You know, I mean, yeah, they made a decision when they made him the headliner and paid him, you know, allegedly eight and a half million dollars for two weekends that they were going to roll with Kanye for better or worse. Everyone knows he's controversial and, you know, most big stars have people have their detractors as well as their fans and he's no exception. And I understand there's more controversy with him, but, you know, musically he makes amazing songs. Yeah. He makes great beats and he's been doing that for two decades. So at least two decades. So I think if you're going to a music festival, it's really not a political thing, although sometimes it can be. I think you're there for the music and for the way it sort of it makes you feel and you want to celebrate with your friends and family. And I can't think of a, you know, Kanye's on that short list of sort of worldwide well-renowned artists that I would want to see. So Yeah, I agree. I'm too, sure man. Coachella wanted him there. Yeah, and I don't think, like, look, I don't think that fucking 50,000 signatures on change.org from a bunch of fans of Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson should really matter. I think that at the end of the day, you're going for the music. I've seen Kanye perform live, like, back, I think this is like, 10 years ago at, like, a Virgin Festival in D.C., and he was 
phenomenal. And that was back then. I can't imagine what it's like to see him now. What does he walk away from? Like, what does someone like him get paid to play at Coachella? Because obviously these people are not headlining these shows for, you know, just a couple bucks. So it was reported, although not confirmed, that he had eight eight million dollars for the two weekends plus a half a million dollar production fee. So Oof. he was gonna get eight and a half million for headlining Coachella. And we'll get into this. Actually, his replacement is the weekend slash Swedish House Mafia. And the weekend actually threatened to back out when Coachella initially tried to pay him less than Kanye. And he said, I'm not gonna do it for one penny less than you were gonna pay him. So they agreed ultimately to pay him eight and a half. Well, I mean, he had all the leverage at that point, right? Because I mean, I guess they could well, go to yeah, somebody so else. Well, yeah, so Coachella announced that he would be replacing Kanye before they had their uh, deal done, which okay. is sort of like rule 101 is you don't <laughs> announce before the contract is signed. So if they were going to try to save any money there, uh, they should have closed that deal before they announced. Granted, listen, you can't... Contract enforcement is one thing. Coachella probably has a deal. You know, they have deals with their artists and they can try to enforce them, but the odds that you can sue an artist and say, hey, you have to perform at this date at this time and actually prevail in that, get sort of specific performance, are very slim. So really, you're going to argue about the money and the refund. So if Kanye is sort of like saying, hey, I'll give you your money back, uh, but I'm not performing, that's basically as far as it's going to go. Right. Yeah, and, and backing out like 10 days before... That is not, that is, you're scrambling if you're Coachella at that point. And like, I've got to imagine like agents are talking to agents, managers are talking to managers, agents are talking to lawyers. I mean, to get a deal like that done, it's not as simple as like, what? You don't call someone and be like, yo, weekend, you want to play Coachella? I, I got to imagine there's a lot of logistics that goes into that. Yeah. Well, Coachella is, there are these concerts, these venues, or these major festivals have enormous complications and complexity. And if you think about it, Coachella has been postponed four times because of the pandemic. So you had people who were scheduled to perform in 2020 and then it got pushed and then 2021 and now it's pushed. And so it's finally here and it's going to happen. And some headliners have pushed to 2023. Basically, you know, if I'm representing an artist and they get a call to headline Coachella, that's a call you take, right? And if there's yeah. any way to clear your schedule to be able to do it, you're going to do it. But the money is something you negotiate. And, you know, as far as like making a flight, hopping over there for, you know, a two hour set, you can make it happen. It's not, you know, it's not that far from LA. So if you're not otherwise busy on that weekend, then you can probably get in there as a plan B, but it's complicated and there's a lot of moving parts for sure. And I've had to plan these festivals for some of my clients in the past. And, and it's funny, I'm working on one right now, which I can't really get into specifics of, but the funding party wants approval of the final confirmed talent list huh. and they want it like months in advance. And I'm trying to tell them, guys, like these things can change up until the last minute. There's yeah, no yeah. way we can tie the funding to something like that, right? Because people are unpredictable inherently. So it's very common in the industry to have last minute changes, but something like this with a headliner backing out a week or a week and a half before a concert happens is, is very rare. Well, I got to imagine too, like when you're dealing with stuff like this in the early days, you're probably getting a bunch of soft commits, right? Like everyone wants to see what happens, who else is playing, where the money is, like what the venue is. So like until you get the deal signed done, I mean, obviously look what happened at, if we look at the complete other end of a spectrum of a festival that just did not do well was Fire Festival, where all these bands started backing out and it was a logistical nightmare and it was a terribly made, Obviously, there's a lot of like 
fraud involved in that too, but like to put on a really, really great show and do it well and make sure that people are paid and that the audience is safe and that they have food and they have drink and vendors, all that stuff. I mean, not only costs money, but how many contracts are even involved at that point? Like hundreds, right? Oh, hundreds, hundreds of contracts. I mean, you're talking about 125,000 people, which is just a massive undertaking. And then, you know, well, I would say planning these festivals, you know, like any industry, if you can lock in your headliners, like the sort of six to eight main draws, you can kind of fill in. Not that there's any insignificant artists on the on the bill here, but I'm just saying it's sort of easier to fill in the the less sort of well-known acts. And obviously the budget for those acts is a lot smaller. So, you know, clients that are playing these major festivals, but sort of at the earlier time slots that aren't necessarily the household names yet, are making a frac- tiny fraction of what the headliners are making. But it's still a great opportunity for them to go out and perform in front of potentially 50 to 100,000 people that may not have heard of them and to bring their, you know, you say you played Coachella, that's only going to increase your yeah. sort of profile if you're an up-and-coming artist. For sure. And, you know, my sister's actually going to Coachella, so I'm sure regardless of who she sees, it's going to be a fun time. I think everyone's just excited to like go to a music festival after all the shit that people have been dealt with for the last two years. So, yeah, I haven't been to Coachella since 18. So, I'm we're long overdue. Well, maybe we'll go together, Paul, and we'll have a little better call Paul booth at Coachella next year. And uh, we could be doing live updates. <laughs> I don't think that's happening, but uh, we should just go and have fun. Let's take a quick break and come back. Let's talk about Kentanji Brown Jackson, the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. Let's just start out like this is me learning here as well. So tell us why this is so important. Tell us who she is, her background, and then we'll get into it. Okay. So I think this is historically important for a couple of reasons. One, she is she. So she's a woman. She's African-American. And she was also a public defender. She's someone who, taking a step back, to be on the Supreme Court and what it means is incredibly, incredibly impressive, right? You're talking about the highest court in the land, the highest court in the United States, a lifetime appointment. The eight of the nine justices either went to Harvard or Yale Law School. So they were at the top of their class in law school in one of the top two or three best law schools in the U.S. So it's incredibly selective to even be in the conversation to be nominated for this. She is you know, liberal leaning in her politics, which I think, you know, people, Trump appointed three judges and they're all conservative. And so, uh, you know, this isn't a political show and the and judges are supposed to be apolitical, but she's sort of pro-workers' rights. She's anti these really long sentences for nonviolent drug offenses and, and things like that. And she brings a valuable perspective, right? Someone who isn't part of the established upper crust of society, someone who grew up you know, both her parents are African-American. Her father was a lawyer. She came from, you know, somewhat modest background. And she obviously she did really well to go to Harvard undergrad yeah. and Harvard Law. And she was at the top of her class at Harvard Law. So she's incredibly intelligent, incredibly hardworking. But she's not from the sort of established elite, which tends right. to be, you know, sort of how power is preserved. And so I think it's just historic. It's historic for a lot of reasons. And a lot of my clients, you know, 
we're talking about it on Thursday, and that's what I decided it should be a topic for our, our show this week because so many people are just overjoyed at the fact that you know this could happen. I think it brings America. You know, it's it's a for those who want more diversity and more diverse representation and more diverse viewpoints in positions of power. This is a step in that direction. And, and tell us a bit about her career. Like, what are what are some of the big, you know, moments in her career that she's known for? So she went to Harvard, double Harvard, and then she. Briefly, she was a district court judge, and then she also was an appellate judge. And for about two and a half years, she was a public defender, and she did an appellate practice, and she worked at prestigious law firms like Goodwin Proctor and Morrison Forrester. But she is kind of sort of outside the typical realm in terms of being a public defender. And actually, her uncle, when she was growing up, was convicted and I think did a lifetime sentence for nonviolent cocaine conviction. And she petitioned to have the sentence commuted and, you know, worked on that, uh, you know, worked for more lenient sentencing for people who were committing crime. Because I think she understands that a lot of these sentences and crimes are sort of victims of circumstance. You know, good people can do bad things. And the way our society punishes things like drug possession, it's, it's somewhat draconian. And she questions whether that's really a deterrent or the value of that as a deterrent. So I think she's more on the liberal side of sentencing. And part of that is her perspective as a public defender, right? If you're defending people who can't afford lawyers, who you know basically are victims of, of circumstance in a lot of cases. And you know, listen, there's not everyone who can't afford lawyers is automatically sort of like an innocent person. I think that people, if they've committed crimes, should be sort of held to the standards of justice. But she's saying that a lot of times the way our criminal justice system works is not necessarily fair, right? No, so I was I was I was gonna ask now, I mean, big deal for her, you know, big big historic moment, but what do you think her influence is now going to be on the US legal system? Obviously, you know, which is an ongoing evolving system, I think, which is so great about the US legal system and the constitution is that things get amended, things evolve, obviously things get turned over well, but like it's constantly evolving. What do you think her influence is going to be? And then I would love to then ask like, how does it influence entertainment? Well, so it's interesting. So she was a district court judge and she was on the, she was an appellate judge on the DC circuit, but only for a year because she was bumped up to the Supreme court. So she was on the DC circuit from like April, 2021 till now. And now she's going to be Supreme court justice. And in that time, she's held, she's given 600 opinions as a district court or an appellate judge, and she's only been reversed 12 times. So she's got like a 98% record of sort of being affirmed, which is incredibly high. And she, when she was deciding cases, she did actually go against a couple of Trump's decisions. And she's very famously quoted for saying presidents are not kings. So even Uh though, you know, Trump is making all these executive orders, taking all this broad power, she overruled some of the things that he just decreed because she said, you know, the president's role is to sort of execute the laws. The laws are drafted by Congress and the legislature and they're interpreted by the courts. So there's certain bounds, you know, this is separation of powers, the whole foundation of the constitution, which is the court's role is to sort of interpret the law. And she's gone on record and saying, you know, presidents have to play within the boundaries that are established by the constitution. And so you can't just say something should be a certain way if there isn't a legal foundation for it or if there isn't a law that you're sort of executing. Can you give us some context into, I mean, 600 opinions sound a lot. 
<laughs> in general, but 98% rating. Just give us some context there. It's like, is that just really hard to come by? What I'd say is basically if you render an opinion and it can get appealed, right? So if you're an appellate judge, you, you provide an opinion, you're reviewing the trial transcript and looking at the facts and, the, and how the case decided. And then you determine, was there an error? And you can either affirm it or reverse it. And so in a couple cases, notably when it came down to sentencing, sometimes her her sentences were viewed as too lenient and she was she was reversed, but it was only a tiny percentage of the cases. And if you look at sort of her Senate confirmation hearings, that's basically what the Republican seized on. She was viewed as too lenient in a couple child pornography cases where she sentenced people to the minimums or less than sort of what the sentencing guidelines recommended. And a lot of Republican senators seized on that and said, oh, well, you don't deserve to be a Supreme Court justice because you were too lenient in a couple child pornography cases like Josh Hawley and Lindsey Graham. And her response was, you know, I've decided hundreds of cases and you're going to pick like a hand, a small handful where I might have been perceived as too lenient and use that to sort of undermine my entire career and what I stand for as a judge. And that was really unfortunate. So it's great that she was confirmed despite that resistance. And then how does this impact entertainment? Obviously, the show that we discuss, you as an entertainment lawyer, what is the potential here for the impact on the industry? So, I mean, I think the entertainment impact is is really unpredictable, but let's take a look at sort of the things that the Supreme Court decides and how that can impact entertainment. And then her role within that, I mean, she's 51 years old, she could be on the Supreme Court for 30 years. So there's no way to really predict what cases might come up in the next 30 years. But we know that she's sort of liberal leaning compared to the justices that Trump appointed. And so that's probably a good thing if you are pro workers or pro women's rights or, you know, the less sort of fortunate in society because she's represented them for a long time. So the Supreme Court basically decides cases where there's either a dispute between states, which is rare, or some sort of interpretation of federal law. If some particular statute is found to be unconstitutional, the Supreme Court can strike it down. And so about seven to 8,000 cases a year are submitted to the Supreme Court. They only hear about 80 of them, so it's a tiny fraction. But the types of cases they hear are really monumental. And the way that can impact entertainment would be something like First Amendment right the the boundaries of free speech whether how that impacts right. journalism how that impacts censorship antitrust so whether particular behavior or action between sort of companies or in you know in one recent case the NCAA in particular the Austin case in 2021 someone sued the NCAA saying that their rules on amateurism for example and preventing student athletes from earning compensation were a violation of antitrust because it was anti-competitive. And the Supreme Court actually sided with the the person suing the NCAA and they, it was a unanimous decision. And as a result, the NCAA completely changed its policy. So now if you're a student athlete, you can earn money from sort of doing endorsement deals and social media influencing the way you couldn't before, right? You would have lost your scholarship or your eligibility. And that's an example of a Supreme Court case. They're also deciding things like whether the FCC can regulate broadband as a utility. And that has huge impacts on streaming and potentially how internet is consumed. And that could impact platforms like Netflix and Amazon. So there's really just tons of different ways. Well, that's really cool, man. I I think that thank you for 
you know, bringing it up and, and wanting to talk about it on the show because this is stuff that I'm not as familiar with, but I think it's important to highlight historical moments and important moments, and that's great for her, you know, big moment for her. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that will probably recur, right? Like things like copyright and music and artist protection. One Supreme Court case can make an entire career for someone, right? right? Or, right. or So that's the thing. I mean, there's, there's these huge cases that get decided and we can't necessarily predict what ones are the Supreme Court's going to take or what's coming down the pipeline. But suffice it to say that I think over the next 20 or 30 years of her career on the Supreme Court, she'll probably have a huge impact. And in addition, there's this inspirational impact of her being sort of a woman of color in a profession that's been historically dominated by white males. And now right. she's on the highest court of the land. And you know, if you have African-American daughter, or even, you know, we're both people of color, you know, we yeah. can look up to that and say, you know, there's less of a ceiling, right? So when you used to look at the Supreme Court, it was a bunch of white male faces. And now it's getting more, you know, we have Sotomayor, who's Hispanic, and Clarence Thomas, who's African-American. But the notion that it was a sort of like this white man's bastion is decreasing, and she'll be a role model for people for, you know, a generation. Yeah, amazing. Well, congratulations to Kintaji Brown-Jackson. First African-American woman on the Supreme Court. Uh, well, that's our show for this week, folks. Uh, make sure that you are subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. I'd like to say, you know, you can, if you want to message us or talk to us about the show, you can follow me at Meshlakani on Twitter or write to us at bcp at sayhilola.com. If you have any questions for Paul, any topics you want to bring up, we'd love to hear from you. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, Marco Seiler Gonzalez with assistant producer Justin Sanchez and assistant research producer Haas Nasser. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.